Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. I was 19 years old when I was first sent to prison. And at the age of 23, I had some some regular, I will say, female issues that I was seeking out, you know, the doctor for. And then I was told that I had an abnormal pap smear and that I would need a cone biopsy. And so I agreed to it. And then we discussed cancer, me and the doctor, we discussed that if they found cancer, would I want a hysterectomy? I was young at the time, very much uneducated, didn't really know the procedures or any other medical options. And I was scared of cancer like most of us are. And I said, okay, yes, if you find cancer, then you could perform the hysterectomy. But when he went in to do the cone biopsy and to also um, remove what they say possibly was some cysts, he um, intentionally cut off the blood supply to my ovaries and then began to perform what was a sterilization on me. That was Kelly Dillon, who was sterilized without her consent in 2001. I was shocked to learn that this is still happening in recent history. In some California women's prisons, hundreds of inmates have been sterilized without proper consent as recently as 2010. Forced sterilization of women who are poor, disabled, have mental health problems, or incarcerated was commonplace in the U.S. just 50 years ago. In fact, the U.S. was the first country to force sterilization for eugenics purposes. While today this practice is illegal, it is still happening. And even more recently, in 2020, a report to Congress by nine board-certified OBGYNs found that women in a Georgia ICE detention center were subjected, mostly without consent, to unwarranted hysterectomies. Today, I'm talking to Laura Jimenez, Executive Director of California Latinas for Reproductive Justice. Laura has worked with women of color organizations across the country on issues of reproductive justice, including the National Latina Health Organization, the Dominican Women's Development Center, and Sister Song. Laura is passionate about issues of immigration, environmental justice, birthing and parenting as they intersect with reproductive justice. She holds degrees in ethnic studies from both UC San Diego and San Francisco State University. 
Laura, thank you so much for joining us today on The Heart of Healthcare. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be with you today. Let's talk about the origins of sterilization and ultimately eugenics in the U.S. I think the way we look at it sort of officially is that we look at a certain time period in this country about 100 years plus ago where the eugenic pseudoscience sort of led itself into um, policy. Um, But I like to think about sort of the way that eugenics has worked in this country is much longer. And we're sort of in this um, trajectory of of when it started, you know, 500 plus years when there's contact, right? Because when we see there's contact, there's genocide, enslavement of people, forced breeding, removal of children. And when I look at eugenics and, and the policies of sterilization and how it has been used to determine who's fit to reproduce and who is not, I feel like it goes much longer than that. And so in this country, we basically start our history um, with eugenics policy um, against specific communities, right, that are encountered. But moving forward, right, to the official policy about 100 and plus years ago, eugenics was then sort of, you know, used to determine, as I said, who was fit to reproduce, and then it crept into state policies. And so we had um, many states that enacted policies that allowed the states to forcibly sterilize residents of their state. Uh, In California, the state sterilized approximately 20,000 people. And for context, the official numbers that I've seen are that there were between 60 and 70,000 people sterilized in the entire country. Yeah. I mean, it looks different today, but forced sterilization is still happening. I think the most recent example at the ICE detention center in Georgia shows that it's, it's still happening today. So Dr. James Heinrich, who is the OBGYN who performs sterilizations in California women's clinics, was quoted as saying, this is cheaper than welfare. Mm-hmm. First of all, why would a doctor have, I mean, he's, he's enacting policy there. I think he's actually enacting policy. He wasn't even supposed to legally be enacting, right? Yeah, he's he's making his own policies, right. determining what he thinks yeah. is best for our society and our government. And I think you know what you see there is just um, the sort of long term effects of the ways that politicians sort of put forward their own campaigns and get you stuck on something. So I think there we get a little bit of. Um, you know, Reagan's welfare queen, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that phrase and that image and all that it it means to people gets utilized in a lot of ways. And so you have people constantly, you know, referring to, well, you know, it's going to cost us some, this amount of money to do X, Y, or Z. And, and then you have people who have power, like the doctor um, that you're referring to, whether it's just, you know, this, this limited power within prisons, right? Or you know maybe they're a senator or congressman or whatever that make that start making decisions on their own. You know like oh yeah we don't want to you know we need to cut back on spending. So these people who are incarcerated have quote unquote done something wrong, and I have decided you know I'm going to make a decision and do something that's going to prevent them from having those children and and incurring those expenses. The bill that you sponsored to help uh, California pay reparations for the survivors of the state's sterilization efforts, that was announced last year, 2021. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about how many women will receive these reparations? So the estimates of the survivors um, remaining are around the 600 number. There's about between 300 and 400 of the legacy survivors, which is what we've been calling the survivors from the 1909 to 1979 period. And then there's about 250 of the prison sterilization survivors. So that's the total that of the estimate of who's still alive and could come forward. So our bill was modeled on work that was done in Virginia, North Carolina. They both also created their own compensation funds. They had about 25% of their estimated sur- living survivors come forward. So we're estimating about 25% of that number. So that's about, is that about 150, I think? We're estimating a compensation payment of $25,000. Is that enough? No amount is enough. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that we've been clearly, you know, saying yeah. throughout the time. There's no amount of money that's going to give these people back, give the survivors back what was taken from them or the violence that yeah. was done to them. It is an, an attempt and it's a step for the state to be accountable. The state, yeah. um, great Governor Gray Davis made, made a formal apology back when he was governor. Um, but that was sort of it. And an apology is a great first step. Um, yeah. But, but but really making amends is different. And so this is a piece of that. Yeah. What's another win for us on this piece is that more people know about it. As we have done screenings of the films and talked and shared with people about the reproductive justice framework in this history, as we've been in legislative committees, as we've talked to media, people just didn't know that this happened. Nobody, you know, a lot of people didn't know that this happened. There's, there's a specific set of people maybe that, took women's studies or Chicano or Latino studies um, at some point in their academic career or stumbled upon one of the films that, you know, that know that this happened. People for the most part, you know, just don't know that this happened in this, at this scale. And yeah. so the fact that people are, that it is coming to light and, um, and people are, are learning about it is really important. It's not in our educational curriculum. Right? Yeah. It's just, it's just, if you happen to find it some way. Yeah. When I, when I heard about your work, my jaw dropped. I could not believe that we were still uh, facing this. It was such recent history. But to to put the reparations into context, the amount, I was rear-ended by a drunk driver last year. Mm-hmm. And my, I don't know what they call it, the compensation that I was given uh, so far from the insurance company was the same amount. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's enough. I would imagine that um, it's, it's hard to put a price on it, but they certainly deserve more. Yeah. We'll be right back after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. 
Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tell us about your background. Uh, You've worked with a lot of reproductive justice organizations. um, And what ultimately led you to the work that you currently do at CLRJ? I feel like I have a funny story. I I feel like in some ways I fell into the work that I was doing. But then when I look back at the kind of things that I was doing as a very young person, I don't know that I actually fell into it. I, I was led to it. I, you know, started out my first job out of college. Um, I was an ethnic studies major at UC San Diego. My first job after that was in the Bay Area with the National Latina Health Organization. And it was just kind of a coincidence. I was thinking of moving there. A friend of mine had been volunteering there and set me up to meet with the director. And in the middle of talking with her, I realized she was interviewing me because her administrative assistant was was going to be leaving. And so I kind of ended up with this job there um, as the admin assistant. And as in many small nonprofit organizations, um, I started there and then I started helping out with the youth programming they were doing. And then you know, I was a trainer and then I became a program director. And so, um, so that's why I say like, I kind of fell into it and then it, you know, but I also, I think there was a path that I was walking on there that I didn't know that I was, I hadn't intentionally landed there, but, um, and so after I knew it was your purpose. Yeah. You know, I guess so. And so, um, you know, once I was started there, um, as part of my work at National Latina Health Organization, that organization became involved with Sister Song, the Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, um, which was a moment in time in the late 90s, really, where um, a bunch of women of color organizations that had been working on reproductive health and rights um, were, were funded by the Ford Foundation to get together and talk about what they had been doing, like what their work had been doing and what they could do together. And it was kind of, um, it was the first time a, a foundation had funded a group like in this way, like in an all-in way like this. But it was not the first time that women of color had kind of been trying to get together to do this work together. When I landed at that first job in 1994, I was exposed to people from the Bay Area Black Women's Health Project and the National Black Women's Health Project and the Native American Women's Health and Education Resource Center and all of these folks that, and they were constantly in conversation, right? Because what I learned is they had been in movement in their own places in their own wherever they were geographically across the country and experiencing sort of tokenism constantly being told that women of color weren't supportive of reproductive rights uh, organizing 
And so they started organizing in their own communities and um, talking to each other about how to best work through this, right? How to best do this work. And so Sister Song was the first sort of, not the first, it was like the fifth attempt for women of color to collaborate together. And it's the one that stuck in some ways. So I ended up after several years, fast forwarding about 10 years, when Sister Song moved from being a a project of the the Ford Foundation to uh, its own organization, I ended up working at Sister Song as well and developing out, helping develop out that organization. And right around the time that the reproductive justice framework was being introduced to the world. So um, reproductive justice as a, a term and as a concept was introduced Um, was created by um, Black women in 1994. And then I think from that time forward, you know, it was really, we were kind of fleshing out, what does this mean, you know, what does this mean, reproductive justice framework? What does the work look like? Who's doing it? How is it being done? Um, And, you know, was informed by the theory of intersectionality and Black feminist work. And so it it was, you know, for me, that was also very pivotal because I was... um, I felt like I was this—I was this very young person, you know, that um, had the opportunity again. Kind of fell into, in my mind's eye, I wasn't really ever sitting at their feet, but like sitting at the feet of these women who had been um, doing the work for many years. You know, they were had been in in advocacy and movement and organizing for twenty plus years, um, and I was listening to their the lessons that they had learned and watching them create something new and participating in creating something new. And uh, it was important for me, and I think it's an important part of the ways that, that we do the work, especially when we got these very small um, organizations that are led by and for women of color is that, you know, it's kind of like you jump in as admin assistant and then you get to do a little bit. And there's a lot of like building of your leadership and growing you as a leader. And I'm grateful, you know, that I was sitting with Luz Alvarez Martinez and Luz Rodriguez and Loretta Ross and, um, you know, Sharon Asatoyer. Uh, these were, you know, these are women that are still, you know, doing the work, but they're major, you know, I feel like they're just like, they're my elders and they're my teachers and they yeah. really, they really grew this work. Um, and I feel like, I feel like more than me, there was just a lot of sacrifice too. There's a lot of sacrifice of themselves personally that, um, you know, it's their passion and they wanted to do, but, you know, some of it, I feel like it was hurtful and it was painful and, but ultimately they created something new and beautiful. Yeah. Has your perspective and work on reproductive justice changed since becoming a mother? Uh, I became a mother in the middle of all of this. You know, I started my work in 1994 and my first child was born in 2001. Um, you know, so reproductive justice, our, our, our tenants are the right to not have children and have access to abortion, contraception, comprehensive sex ed, et cetera, the right to have children without intervention from the state, the right to parent your children. And so I was introduced to people that were doing abortion advocacy, but I was also introduced to people that were doing a work with midwives and doulas and trying to make those services more accessible, right, to, to communities maybe that didn't have the money that would, that it was require to to pay for those services and so um for me when i became pregnant it was like i felt very empowered to make whatever choices i needed to make about my prenatal care my birthing experience about who was going to be present with me about where i was going to give birth um my being part of the reproductive justice 
baby movement at that time, like the, the baby movement that it was at that time, um, was really instrumental, pivotal in my pregnancy and my parenting and my, my, my labor and delivery. You knew more going into it, but also coming out of it, you were able to bring probably some of those lessons to your work. I think I, yeah, I think I knew more from other people's experiences, but I also <laughs> knew how to, I knew, I knew how to advocate for myself and I knew how to bring other people. I knew to ask how to ask for help, right. And not be isolated or alone in the experience. And yeah. I, I think, you know, what we see a lot of times is, you know, with pregnant and birthing people that there, there are so many opportunities to be isolated and feel alone and not know what you're doing and not know what the right questions are to ask or not trust yourself and um, just allow a medical provider to sort of lead you down, you know, a road of decisions that maybe, maybe you're not comfortable with, right? Mm-hmm. Without knowing that you can, you can ask those questions. And my experience with medical providers is the more questions you ask, the more they step back from kind of pushing you in a, in particular ways. Yeah. It changes the, the dynamic. They know that you're informed and that you'll be an advocate. And I find that it's, I was having this conversation recently um, on another episode. Why are we so afraid to get a second opinion? You know, we, we feel like there's this loyalty to the one physician that you're seeing at that time. And it would somehow be insulting to them if, if you want to seek another opinion or talk to another doctor. Yes. I, you know, I am actually currently, um, being treated for breast cancer and was diagnosed last year. And I actually, you know, when I went to the first oncologist that I was referred to through my insurance at that time, I did not have a good experience. And I, I I was, Mm -hmm. she came in the room, she was with me for like 15, maybe 20 minutes and had like outlined my care plan and was just like, you know, gone. Right. And it didn't sit right with me and I couldn't figure out why. And um, you know, we were in COVID already. So I had brought a friend with me, but she didn't come in, but she, she had actually sent me in with the, the phone recording and she listened to the recording like yeah. five times and was like, no, no, no. And so, you know, I've worked in healthcare advocacy all this time. And so, you know, we immediately started looking for another doctor, went to another doctor and, you know, first the consultation was like an hour and a half, you know, it was just an unlimited amount of like time given, there was attention to my questions. There was not just kind of like a, a, you know, desire to push me towards her treatment plan. And I, you know, in looking at it after the second consultation, I was like, I had such a deep sadness for people that, you know, I had seen in that first office and there really was a difference, you know, yes, doctors have a lot of education and, and it's important, you know, that we're listening to them but it's part of decisions we have to make, right? Yeah. We have to take their expertise and and decide what's best for us, for our body, our families, and and how we want to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. What work are you most proud of? Right now, I'm very proud of the work that we've done on the sterilization compensation fund. Yeah. I think we spent um, many years working on this in one shape or another, and um, having met some survivors of sterilization and hearing their stories and um, knowing that the work that we're going to do is going to affect some of them is really feels really amazing and and huge to me and it, it again like it's not it does not change what was done to them right? it doesn't change the violence that was enacted upon them and their bodies um, but it it does it does feel like a huge step yeah 
what work I'm most proud of also is I have, um, you know, I have two daughters that I think are amazing. They're 17 and, and almost 21. And oh. they have grown up in the reproductive justice movement from like, they yeah. were, I was literally, I think the first person to birth a baby during the sister song um, times. Um, yeah. So they've been, you know, nursing at conferences and running around at conferences and, you know, to helping at conferences. And so I f- they're very clear and assured that their their body is theirs. They have no questions about their bodily autonomy. Yeah. And, you know, I listen to them talking to friends and I've watched from, you know, the time of first grade when one of my kids was deciding to tell friends about sex, <laughs> which yeah. maybe have been unwelcome by other parents, but <laughs> she gave them lots of information to like high school when I hear them, you know, saying, everybody comes to me to ask me questions about sex and reproductive health because they know that I know. And so it's like just amazing to me to be like, yeah, this is so cool. (laughs) But like this life's work of, you know, almost 21 years now is like, I see it. I see it. You know, the fact that they've been with me and, you know, they've been around all these folks and seen the movies and listened to the analysis. They're, they're right there, whether or not this is something they choose to do in their lives. They've there it's, it's in them. Do they want to, do they want to carry on the work in this space? I'm not certain, you know, if they go back and forth, they'll, um, they definitely have been involved in, um, in things sort of informally, but they're both sort of trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives right now. And so I don't know. So what's next for you and the organization and how can people support your work? We are working on the implementation of the sterilization compensation fund. Um, but I think what we're also working on that's really important is, um, we're working on some uh, collaborative work with other partners here in California around um, the declaration of racism as a public health crisis here in the state of California. Amazing. And um, sort of looking at what are the concrete steps that can be taken, like impactful steps that are beyond just saying, you know, racism is a public health crisis in California. What does that mean? And so I think we're at this moment where, especially like in 2020, COVID, um, the George Floyd murder um, and the sort of, you know, the constant racial reckoning that in the society now, they they collided in a way where it was like, you know, people were like, ah, oh, you know, systems are breaking down, COVID, you know, no, systems were not breaking down. Systems were working exactly as they were designed to. And, and that means that the poor folks of color, immigrants, people with disabilities, those were the folks that, you know, were most marginalized, were not getting, you know, the access to resources and dying, right? So I think that as we look at this, we have the opportunity because these things sort of collided in, in this moment, we were able to say, okay, this is a systemic problem. This is not just, you know, we need to fix tele, you know, the, the ability to do telehealth appointments, right? We need to talk about the systems that are in place and how do we fix those? And so I think that that's a huge piece that we're working on. Um, And, and I think, and the other piece that's really, you know, major right now, of course, is waiting on the Supreme court, um, Mm. (laughs) waiting on the Supreme court to see how badly they mess with Roe v. Wade and what is about to happen. So, you know, we're also in California, we're part of the future of abortion council, um, which is a group of, 40 organizations that have been meeting to talk about what, what is the future of abortion given yeah. that we may have people from, you know, 
30, 20 plus states that are seeking abortion care here in California. What do we need to do? And so we're really wow. looking at, you know, where do funds need to be allocated? Do we have enough providers? We're, we're, they're estimating a 3000% increase in the number of people who will come into California um, wow. seeking abortion. So, you know, clearly we're going to need more, pro- more providers, more funds, more protections, just to make sure that, you know, you know, people can't be charged here in California because of Texas's law and um, all of those things. So we're really um, active in that piece right now as well. Disaster preparedness. Yeah. Um, And I think what's important to know is, I mean, I don't think that we are by any means ready, (laughs) but I would say that um, California, we're definitely not, we're not a perfect state. We, there's definitely lots of work to do here in California around access for, especially for marginalized communities. But the fact that we are in a state where we are able to pass proactive legislation on reproductive rights um, is not just because we have a democratic supermajority. It's because there's 30, 40, you know, 50, almost 50 years or more of activism and advocacy that has been done in the state to make the conditions so that the people of the state recognize that bodily autonomy and these, you know, rights to abortion and contraception, comprehensive sexuality are important. And we've, you know, collectively pushed legislators and governors to make sure that this happens. And so while we're not ready for this influx of people, I think we are ready in the sense that we quickly, I have been able to identify what we need and hopefully we'll have the support of the state, um, you know, the government to be able to make it happen as, as quickly as possible. Wow. Well, we have um, made a donation on behalf of the podcast to your organization. And Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for the amazing work you do. Thank you so much for being here. If you're listening and you want to follow Laura's work, you can visit their website, californialatinas.org. Thank you for tuning in to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seeley. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seeley. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.